everyone, welcome back to Keep It Quirky. I'm Katie Quinn, and on this podcast, I talk with creatives and entrepreneurs about food and travel, inspiration, and the discipline and drive to create. Passion begets passion, so let's do this. You've probably had almond butter before, but I bet you didn't know it could be better. Jordan Gaddy, the founder of, you guessed it, Better Almond Butter, realized it could actually be a whole lot better. By using only truly raw Spanish almonds and a process called sprouting, he created an almond butter that is more nutritious, more natural, and more delicious. In other words, it's better. Go to www.betteralmondbutter.com for more info. All right, guys, so I'm really excited about today's episode because it is with Nikki Kopka. Nikki is, in a word awesome. (laughs) She is the founder of Mozzie Moz. It's a catering company and roaming restaurant here in London that employs and trains migrant and refugee women. It's women of all ages from all over the place. They're migrating for various reasons, but the thing that they all have in common is a crazy awesome skill for cooking. Mozzie Moz is about bringing the most unique part of a culture's cuisine to you. And that tends to be home cooking, the kind of food that these women know how to make. It is in their bones. Nikki's work at the moment is really all about changing the misperception of migrant and refugee women. To get people to see them as skilled professionals. Sure, they're migrants and refugees, but she is adamant about not being a charitable project. She simply gives people who are incredibly talented opportunities. So really, Nikki is both a passionate creative, she loves food and cooking more than anything, which I can relate to, and also a social entrepreneur. She's found a way to take her feminism and activism into the core of the business that she created. The conversation I had with Nikki is really one of the favorites I've had so far for this podcast. I enjoyed so much about it, and something that stuck with me since we recorded this last month was a bit about the cliché Food made with love. Nikki's explanation of what people are actually trying to get at when they say that is just so good. You'll see what I mean later in the pod. I loved editing this piece just to listen back on some of the things we talked about. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here's Nikki. Hi, Nikki. Hi. (laughs) Before we get into everything, will you read this story you have on the Mazimas website, about the company. Sure. Mazimas starts with the story of one woman. Maria Maruli grew up on the island of Evia in Greece and married a carpenter. After the military coup in 1967, they moved to the United States with their two teenage children. They went wherever Maria's husband could find work. Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Chicago, New Jersey, and finally, New York City. By the time they settled in Astoria, the Greek part of Queens, Their children were out of the house, and Maria was spending most of her time alone. With only a primary school education and rudimentary English, Maria wasn't qualified for most jobs, and in any event, she was expected to have dinner on the table when her husband got home from work. She loved America, but even after 15 years, it felt just beyond her reach. She wanted to be part of it. She wanted to open a bakery. It never happened. Her husband wouldn't hear of it. Women did not go into business, he said. They took care of children. So Maria answered an ad in the Greek newspaper for a nanny and started caring for a two-month-old baby girl. A quarter century later, that baby girl, now a woman, found herself in London. 
Her passion for food and cooking, instilled in childhood by her godmother Maria, led her to volunteer in community kitchens all over the city. There, she met many women like her godmother, migrant women who could not find work or did not have the right to work and had little support to help them find their feet in a new place. They came to volunteer because they wanted to put their culinary skills to use, to gain work experience, meet new people, and give back to their communities. And overwhelmingly, these women dreamed of one day having their own small food business. Mazimas was founded to help guide these dreams to fulfillment, to make possible for other women what was not possible for Maria. Our vision is of a world in which women are full, equal, and independent participants in public life, their care work valued, their voices heard, and their skill rewarded. Thank you for reading that. You're welcome. That's you in the story, right? That, 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 that little girl. That is me. Yes, indeed. The two-month-old who is now more than a quarter century <laughs> old. At what point growing up did you hear this story? Actually, very recently. I, of course, observed growing up the dynamics of their relationship, which were uh, kind of classically patriarchal. But this story was was not one that I heard until I was older, until I was well into my 20s. I had never realized that that was the dream she had had. Um, and then I heard it, and of course, all of my academic interest at the time, and I must have been, I guess I was in, in university at the time, was feminism and was gender, and that is my academic background. And, and a lot of that sort of interest on a personal level was born out of the fact that I, you know, witnessed their relationship for so many years. But it was... It must have been, um, I don't know, probably eight years ago now, hearing that story, uh, everything just sort of clicked. You know, I didn't, I hadn't realized that she had nursed a dream because she is a woman of an era when women are, um, you know, women of her era were self-effacing and sort of made themselves and their, their interests and their aspirations secondary, you know, to whether it was to a husband's or whether to their children. You know, women of her generation, particularly of her part of the world, didn't allow themselves to dream. So hearing that she had had a dream and that that dream was not realized was really, you know, it really, it hit hard and... I carried it with me. I kind of carried that. I've always carried her her pain with me, you know, and the, the pain of all the women of that generation. So when you say that it clicked when you heard about this, what was that click? Did it click in then action and business plan and you started this company or what did the click enable you to start doing? Yeah, no. I mean, this was something. <laughs> it doesn't happen. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it happens that way for some people, but it, it doesn't happen, did not happen that way for me. I think it was the starting point, really, of something. My thinking was so steeped in um, in sort of creating places for women to be recognized and rewarded because this really has been a sort of a truly lifelong passion of mine. I mean, I don't like... I came to feminism very early and in a very personal way. And I think when you come to something in a personal way, it really doesn't leave you. And so her story, that story in particular, was more the seed of something that I kept sort of pondering and wasn't quite sure what to do with for a long time. And coming to London, I think, is is when when it all sort of started to come together. How is that? Is it because London is so full of a lot of people who are not from London? 
Yes, in part. I think um, for two reasons. So I moved to London in 2010 to do a master's in gender and development. And when people ask me what that is, I sort of generally say, well, it's it's sort of generally about like women in poverty, as is what I studied. Women at the London School of Economics, Economics which right. is kind of a big deal. So good on you. <laughs> which happens to have a gender institute, um, which is completely at odds with the rest of LSE. <laughs> We're a little feminist oasis. But anyway, I studied in Edinburgh, so it wasn't, you know, wasn't my first time in the UK, but I was new to London and I ended up moving into a big ramshackle house in the East End where I and the other, uh, how many of us were there at the beginning? I think there were eight of us in that house and I and the seven other people in that house were all white and we were very much in the minority in our area. And there was all around me, so this was just like south of Whitechapel and those who know Whitechapel know that it just teems with these markets Amazing markets full of vegetables I had never seen before. And I'm obviously an obsessive cook. And so I would, I love going to markets. And I would walk through these markets and walk behind the women who were sort of kind of checking out what they were going to make for dinner. And I was walking behind them just thinking, I just wish I knew what they were going to do with these things. You know, I just, I really just would love to be invited to one of their houses for dinner. And it was that, you know, that that I kind of thought, wow, well, there's something here. You know, if I would love to be invited to their houses for dinner and if I want, you know, to be exposed to the kind of cooked food that they're cooking at home, you know, surely there is something, we can make something out of this. And indeed, you know, that's what, that's what my godmother wanted to do, you know. She wanted to, to simply use the skills that she had cultivated in her home and turn them into a business, do it for money. So it all sort of came together in that, in between those those sort of three things. Your company, Mazimas, now enables women from all around the world who happen to be in London right now, it enables them to do what your grandma couldn't do. And is that is that really what it kind of comes down to for you? Or is it more expensive than that at this point? Gosh, I think there is so much to say. I think the spirit of this more generally is the desire to create a space and a platform for women to leverage all of the um, knowledge and skills that they have developed as unpaid carers, so in the home. The aim at the beginning was very simple, and it was very, very close to what, you know, the, the, the sort of inspiration that I had with my godmother, and that was to simply create a space where women could open their own restaurant for a night. And then for that to be the seed of something that developed over time into a permanent restaurant. So that's, I think we're, we're a ways down that path. Um, we're, we're sort of in developing plans for a permanent restaurant now. You know, these things take a very long time. But I think the spirit of it more generally is about recognizing the skills that women have developed as a result of misogyny and sexism. Because... That's why women have such amazing skills. Mm -hmm. That's why women are such talented cooks. So I have a question on this, but just personally, do you, because you said before, okay, when you were telling your story, like, obviously I'm someone who loves to cook. And I was thinking, well, I know that about you. It is very much a part of who you are. In fact, as we're recording this, we're in Nikki's kitchen in South London, and it is, it is just 
immaculate. All of her spices are labeled and they're in these mismatched jars. A picture of it could be in any of these indie food magazines that we see. You're you're very kind. (laughs) Not quite. (laughs) No, I, I really love it. Anyway, this is all to say, yes, food and cooking is such an intrinsic part of who you are. I would say the same for me, too. Do you think that that has anything to do with the fact that you are a woman, that that we are women? Or is it just in some people and not in others? Um, I think both. But I think that like any conversation about this has to depart from the understanding and the recognition that women were socialized to be mothers and to be carers. And part of that was feeding families. So, um, yes, I think absolutely, you know, if we're thinking about this in a sort of, you know, idealistic, there is no patriarchy kind of way. Yes, there is just the love of cooking and food in people. And that that is a fact. But also, so many women were compelled to do it, whether they wanted to or not. I happen to be somebody who, you know, has both in me. I, I was raised by women and I was taught to cook by my godmother and I think when you're surrounded by you know Greek culture and similar cultures where food is all important in terms of like the social fabric of the culture um it it is something that you love almost by default but you know I also do just like have you know I would rather be cooking than doing anything else (laughs) I can definitely relate to that um also I think a couple times I called her your grandmother as opposed to godmother. So sorry, your godmother. Just get the record straight on that. You explained kind of when these two passions of yours, how how the ideas kind of converge when you realized, oh, I want to go see what these women are cooking at their home. So what were the first actual steps you took, like business-wise, to put this together? For someone who's listening who has a business idea, what did you do first? Well, I did... Almost no planning. So I think my my advice would be, do not do what I did. What a place to start. (laughs) Well, I'm somebody, if I I get an idea, I just, I have to do it. And I think in in some ways that is is a good way to start um, in the sense that if you take a risk, but it is a risk that is small enough that you can sort of feel comfortable taking that risk, then you should just do it. I think I think a lot of people do get bogged down in the planning. And, you know, I'm going to be completely honest. I wish I had done more planning at the outset. But, um, you know, I, the idea was simple. I was just like, well, I want to open a restaurant. I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> so what I can do is get 30 friends in a room and get them each to part with 25 pounds for an amazing three-course meal cooked by... A really talented woman and that's where it started and I think um in some sense I would advise that mm-hmm. you know just just start just start somewhere test because I think with if you take one step and if you take a little risk then you're prepared to take more you see that it's not as scary as you think on the other hand plan <laughs> <laughs> when I was thinking about how to introduce you and your company the other way you could talk about your company is that Oh, it's it's a catering company with sometimes pop-ups and residencies, but that so misses the heart of what it is. Really, in my opinion, what makes your company 
incredible and like so above and beyond any other group of people who cook together and have pop-ups. How do you explain or describe what you do in your company and these women to other people who have no idea what you do? I mean, that is a tough one. I think it changes uh, according to the audience. What's interesting about what you have just said is that I think I started off with it where where you are sort of describing it as being. And then, of course, over the course of five years, by necessity, it has to become more of a business. And so now I am much more likely to introduce it as a catering company and roaming restaurant that employs and trains migrant and refugee women. And I think um, language is something that we think about a lot. It's something that I have thought about a great deal, the way in which we describe what we do, because in order for this to succeed long term and in order for us to be able to provide, you know, exponential opportunities to women, um, not just here, but all around the world, it has to succeed as a business. And therefore, I am reluctant, actually, to foreground who the participants are and more likely to foreground, you know, that we are a profit-making business like any other. Wow, I totally get that. Since this is a podcast, (laughs) (laughs) would you mind sharing about some of these women? Like, who are they? Where did they come from? What are their stories? Well, they come from, I mean... (sighs) All over, at this point, I think that we have worked with women from 20 different countries over the past five years, which is, of course, just a fraction of the countries, you know, the ethnicities that are represented in London, which is what's so exciting about it. So our current cohort, uh, we have chefs from Iran, Costa Rica, South Sudan, Ecuador. But over the years, we've worked with women from China, Ethiopia, um, Oh, gosh, all over. I always, I'm, I'm always like, oh, gosh, I, I wish I had the list in front of me. I don't have the list in front of me, but it's, it's lengthy. They come to London under different circumstances. And when one of the sort of principles of Mazimas is that we do not discriminate in terms of why people are migrating here. I believe very strongly that I think we're all aware that there's heightened interest in refugees and in supporting refugees as, um, as a population at the moment. But I think people migrating for economic reasons are often migrating under, the, under, under very similar kinds of duress, basically. So I think that, that the notion that because people are migrating out of economic necessity or for other, other reasons, um, it's, it's all kind of part of, this, part of the same deal. So we have women who have come because they are fleeing conflict and violence, um, because they are fleeing abusive relationships that actually we see quite a lot. Um, women who are coming to join their um, their spouse, uh, even those who have who we've had women who come to study, who have met spouses on holiday here and then come to join them. So for all different reasons and um, and they're all different ages as well. One of the very first. Uh, chefs who kind of was there from the very beginning, Roberta, who is now part of our management team. She is an example of somebody who came to uh, came to this country, fell pregnant, and had had um, a very good kind of solid job uh, in a bank in her native Brazil, in Rio, where she's from. And um, and suddenly, after having a kid and thinking, you know, I'm 
perfectly qualified. I should go back to work and just found that there were no jobs for her and was unemployed for eight years. And I met her volunteering. And that's kind of, that's, that's fairly typical. I mean, we do, we work exclusively with long-term unemployed women. And of course, women are long-term unemployed for many reasons, but chief among them is the fact that they are mothers and motherhood poses a great number of obstacles for, for women in general, but especially women who are, um, less advantaged in other ways. So this woman who you were just talking about comes from Brazil. Does that mean that the food that she cooks is Brazilian? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mazimos is really about um, showcasing what I think is the most unique part of any culture's cuisine, and that is what people cook at home. So you're not going to get what you get in restaurants, the kind of -of run-of-the-mill stuff that you get on every, I don't know, Indian menu in London. You don't get that at Mazimas. You get what women are cooking at home. On your website, you have that these are heritage recipes reinvented. So I think that that's kind of what you're getting at. But can you kind of elaborate on what that means? Okay, so yes, it is the food she goes from Brazil, but... But we are obviously a multicultural kitchen and the team is engaged in training. And that means that each menu and indeed each recipe is going through a process of refinement uh, that necessarily changes, you know... It, it's not going to reach you on a plate in the way that it would in, you know, a roadside cafe in Ecuador. I like to think of our role as curators. Mazimas is a curator, above all. We're a curator of talent. We're a curator of products, of, you know, creative products. And it's all about refining and repackaging because you wouldn't, what you what you are served in people's homes is not necessarily something that you would, um, you know, pay 15 pounds for in a restaurant. But the flavors are all there. It's really just about the packaging and kind of editing, editing around the edges. So what is your role in curating? And, and how has your role changed since you first launched? When we first launched, I was doing everything. So I was heavily involved in, you know, the, the kind of food curation side of things. And now I think of my role um, is much more in terms of the curation of how how Mazimas is perceived in the world and how um, how we want the wider world to perceive the women that we work with. So I'm much more on that side and sort of like... It's again, I mean, so much of it comes just comes down to packaging. People look at me like I'm kind of crazy when I say that. But it really is about kind of changing the register for different audiences. Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense to me. And I think, you know, you've heard of the multi-career person. I certainly consider myself that. And I think it's becoming more and more common. And I can relate to what you're saying just in the sense of depending on who I meet, I describe what I do entirely differently. Some people I say I'm a video creator. Some people I say I'm a video journalist. Others it's YouTuber. <laughs> Others it's like, oh, I run a business called QKD. So I get that. And marketing is like what it comes down to, right? You're, you are trying to get the word out about this thing. And it depends what kind of ears it's falling on. And also, I think my mission through this is really to use Mazimas to change the perception of not just migrant and refugee women, but the way that we think about women and women's work. And so, you know, coming back to what I said at the beginning, it being really important that we're seen as a business, 
and the reason that I tend not to foreground, you know, the backgrounds of the women that I work with is because most people have a particular perception of migrant and refugee women and don't consider them, or the, the first thing that pops into their head is not, oh, these are, you know, seasoned, talented professionals. Mm-hmm. And the work of Mazimas and my work at the moment, more than anything, is to change that. And I change that by making sure that our product is absolutely top-notch and that we are competitive with everybody else out there and that we don't speak about what we do in terms of it being a sort of charitable project. No, we're, we're simply giving people who are incredibly talented opportunities. That's all we do. Um, I do yeah, that's, I, I have to like let that sit for a second because it's really powerful. It's really powerful. It goes beyond, I love food and I love cooking. And it goes beyond, I believe in these women. I mean, it really... It like, cuts to the bottom of it. So you talked about why it began in London and why London is a prime place for this to be. As people can probably tell by your accent and by your story that you were, you know, with your godmother in Queens, you are American. I well, am. I have three nationalities. <laughs> I am... <laughs> I'm half Greek, half German, um, but I grew up in New York, hence the American accent. So, so lucky. Greek father, German mother, went to an international school. It's, it's, my background is totally international. Okay, right. Okay, so, well then, my question extends beyond, I was just going to ask, is this something that could also be in New York City? But I guess that this question could be, could it be in New York City slash Berlin slash Athens? Absolutely. And that's where, you know, that's the next five years. Oh. That's... Uh, the next so. five years, I mean, five years, that's like a short timeline. Is that is that oh, where you're... Sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, we, my sort of milestone is as soon as the restaurant opens, then I get to work on the rest. But yeah, I mean, Mazimas was always... It's a model, and I'm interested in it spreading. I am interested in um, this being a, a locally responsive model, which originates here because we have identified something which exists all over the world, lack of opportunities for women. This is a problem everywhere. It's particularly a problem in, um, in large urban areas. And Mazimas is an excellent model to, you know, that can that can work to alleviate some of those problems. And it's absolutely resonant in other parts of the world. And indeed, that is the way that we can really start to have an impact. Because, you know, what can we do in one city? It's limited. This is something which is, it's structural and it's global. And, uh, you know, that that's where my passion comes from, really. The, the fact that this is not limited to one city. And this is not limited to London or New York or Berlin. It's all of these places. And I think that the challenge and the, the exciting question that comes out of that is, okay, so what form does it take in different places? And it's very, very important that it's always a locally led thing because it's it's local people who will have the best assessment of the needs of their communities and also of, of the market, you know. For me, that's a really, it's a really exciting thing to think about. We need to open a restaurant first. <laughs> I've, I've, yeah. In the food that you guys cook and the meals that you create, you're all about memorable meals. What are the elements that make a meal memorable? For me, so much of it is about, first of all, the context. I think context is everything with memorable meals. So now I'm going to do something that I hate and that I instruct everyone (laughs) not to do in our communications. And that is that I think food, I am not going to say food made with love because it is my pet peeve (laughs) and 
It's pretty cliche. I absolutely hate it, and I have outlawed it. I've banned it from all communications, even internal communications. And I really get after people when they say, "Oh well, you know, our food is made with love." That being said, I think that I think that we we're using a cliche when what we actually mean is food that is clearly conceived by somebody and executed with care because that food has been conceived by somebody and is the, is the sort of creative result of somebody's efforts and has been executed with care, you can sense that there is tremendous pride that that person is taking in putting that on your plate. There's something so human about that, about being able to taste care, you know, in, in a plate of food. And, and for me, it's really, really important, again, that, that somebody is putting their own their own sort of maker's mark on it, if that makes sense. And I think that that's what separates restaurants where you have an executive chef who's set the menu and then you've got all these underlings in the kitchen who are executing. I think you can taste that. I mean, I can cer- when I go to a restaurant, I can certainly taste that. And we are trying to go in the opposite direction. You know, So every plate of food has, an, has a signature. There is an author to, every, to everything that you will eat with us. I think, yeah, for me, that's what, that's what makes a meal memorable. I know exactly what you're saying. How is it like that I can taste when care has been put into it? I feel like there should be a word to describe that yeah. sensation. Yeah, and I mean, I think people, you know, people sort of pull out all of these hackneyed, you know, phrases like food that has soul, food made with love. And it is, yeah, a little bit of all of that. But there, yeah, I just, I think that especially in a day and age where we've become so accustomed to machines making our food, you know, to a really sort of mechanized way of eating, it's so remarkable and, I don't know, just really enlivening to see a plate of food where you you can sense, I know there is an autograph on that plate of food. I can sense that somebody has conceived of this and somebody has made it. And also somebody has clearly taken pride in creating this for me. It's almost like a gift. You know, good food is a gift. It really is. So Nikki, you're the kind of person who comes home after a long day and to unwind and have fun in your downtime, you cook, right? I you, cook. You, you, you hang in your kitchen. I cook. I cook and I make ice cream. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're, we're the same kind of people. I, yeah. Ice cream is my obsession. Oh, my God. Okay, yeah. we're going to have, like, I could have an entire another podcast episode with you about ice cream right Amazing. now. You're someone who loves to cook, and you have been exposed to so many, so many types of food and ingredients. What do you tend to cook for yourself in your kitchen? What are you drawn to cook? I think it depends on the season, first of all. And then it also depends largely on what I get in my veg box. So one of the joys of living in London is that I um, get a veg box delivered to me every week from a local community farm, Sutton Community Farm, shout out. They are amazing, also a social enterprise. I just, I love to, I love to be challenged in that way, you know. You get a sense of where you're living, you know. This goes back to these it goes back to the way that my godmother learned how to cook and all of the women of her generation, you know, there were no supermarkets. People were cooking whatever came out of the ground. And that, I think, is what makes kind of cooking constantly exciting as well, is if you're sort of, every season, you're faced with a new sort of array of, of possibilities. And so it depends on that, and it also depends a lot on the weather, you know. 
So for me, all winter, I've been doing a lot of sort of slow braises and stews. And what's exciting, of course, about my work is that I am exposed to so many different flavors and spices. And every time we have a new chef, I invariably go out and <laughs> buy new spices and then <laughs> they get put on the shelf. And um, and I think that they're um, the, the sort of the, the daring of the women working in the kitchen in, in their collaborations, I have learned a lot from that. Because when they, they all get around and they're sort of, um, they're developing refining recipes, invariably little bits of each sort of repertoire gets, gets sort of added to these dishes and you end up with these really like kind of crazy combinations that you would, you'd never think of. Unless you got, you know, someone from Costa Rica and someone from Iran in a kitchen together uh, in the way that we do. And so I think that that has really informed my own, because I, I tend not to be a sort of risk taker. I tend to be a, a real purist about flavors and, and, and things like that. And I think um, that has really rubbed off on me, you know, kind of like, oh, well, I wonder if I, you know, what if I did put, I don't know coriander and looking at my spice shelf now to try and think of. <laughs> Hearing you talk about your business and and how it can be expanded because yes these are global issues that we're talking about and a part of me is like this is so like my hat's off to you like this is so awesome that someone is doing this that Nikki is doing this but I don't want to sit back and like watch people like you do the awesome stuff. I want you to do the awesome stuff. How can I support that? Because there's not yet the brick and mortar. I mean, can I, how can other people find you, find you guys, find your food, find these women and eat all of the amazing things they're making? Well, we are on um, all of the socials. What are you on all of the socials? Slash not all the socials, no, but <laughs> some this of the socials. Clearly, this is not my department. <laughs> but we do have a website, which is mazimas.co.uk. So M-A-Z-I-M-A-S.co.uk. We are on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. We also have a shop. So if you're not able to come to one of our pop-ups or um, eat with us in any other way, then you can sample some of the delights through our shop. So we have um, a really wonderful quince and rose jam and we've got a rhubarb and rose jam in development at the moment and then we'll also have some like really wonderful sweet and sour minty cucumber pickles coming out soon so check that out (laughs) i feel like there is such depth to a lot of this conversation but also levity i mean joy and passion is why you're doing what you're doing leading a business i'm sure you get in times of being stuck and in a rut how do you keep it quirky? I, I have sort of like diverse and slightly weird interests. <laughs> um, and I think that that's really necessary, especially when you're kind of like, you know, very dedicated and driven and very one track in terms of your work. So as as I think you know, I recently took up ice skating again, yes. which is making my life <laughs> Um, cause I skated when I was younger and then I was watching the Olympics and I was like, oh my God, I used to love this. So I did, and I highly recommend doing that, you know, just like, I think it's such a, cause it, it really has sort of spilled out into everything else. And, um, yeah, I just have sort of diverse interests. I'm like a massive political junkie. 
but I would never, you know, go into politics or anything. I think ice skating may be the most epic way to keep it quirky that we have had yet on this podcast. Nikki, thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your story. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a total pleasure. And so after we recorded the podcast, I bought the quince and rose jam and the harissa spice blend from Mazimas. It's delicious. And for obvious reasons that you just heard, this is something so worth supporting. If you're able to support the work, please do. And I just wanted to reiterate one little bit of this that really hits home to me. And that is the statement, good food is a gift. Whether you're someone who likes to cook or not, think about what it means when a homemade meal is placed in front of you at the table. It is a gift. So accept that gift graciously. At the beginning of the episode, you heard about Better Almond Butter, a company that makes a sprouted, unpasteurized almond butter. But there's more to this story than just a really delicious almond butter. The founder, Jordan Gaddy, is a proud idealist and says he's committed to being a progressive food company that prioritizes sustainability, quality, and transparency over everything else. That's pretty cool. To try Better Almond Butter today, head over to betteralmondbutter.com and use the promo code KEEPITQUIRKY. All of their shipping materials are 100 100% biodegradable. Speaking of social entrepreneurship with Nikki, that's exactly what Jordan of Better Almond Butter is doing. Thanks so much for listening to this, and let me know who else should I interview for the pod. Hit me up at QKatie on Twitter and Instagram, or email me at keepitquirkypodcast at gmail.com. And thanks to my incredibly talented musician brother, Brian Quinn, for creating the theme song that you hear here. Until next time, don't forget to keep it quirky. 